Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and 34. There we read these words. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To be abandoned and to be left all alone is perhaps one of the most dreadful experiences in all human existence. Loneliness can often become so unbearable when one feels forsaken, abandoned, and alone that he feels like he's losing his mind. Prisoners of war have testified that even worse than the torture that they experienced at the hands of their enemies was that of solitary confinement, being cut off entirely from all human communication and relationships. In fact, I would suggest that which makes hell so unbearable is the sense of being utterly forsaken now and for all eternity by God and by all men. Yes, there are men in hell, but there are no loving relationships in hell. There is only hatred and despising one another in hell. And there is no further opportunity, no more hope in establishing peace with the one true living God in hell, total abandonment and forsakenness in hell. Why do we find it so difficult at times to stand all alone for the truth of Jesus Christ? Or we feel that we're standing all alone at least. In part, we fear the rejection and the isolation of being all alone. On the other hand, most of us know the experience of going through great temptation, persecution, trial, and affliction at times, and knowing that others stood with us, and especially the Lord Jesus Christ stood with us. The comfort and encouragement that we were not forsaken, even as we were passing through the valley of the shadow of death, kept us going even though we may have felt many times like giving up. Dear ones, the Lord Jesus Christ knew what it was to be forsaken by His disciples, by Israel, and most importantly, by His Father in heaven. In the passage that is before us this Lord's Day, we shall explore the mystery of Christ being forsaken by His Father. And the main points from our text are these. Two main points. First, Christ was forsaken by God. 
in Mark 15, verses 33 through 34. And second, Christ was yet confident in God. Mark 15:34. Our first main point then, Christ was forsaken by God. And again, let me read for you those two verses in Mark 15, verses 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We consider today the fourth utterance of Christ from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This desperate expression from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ is filled with the utmost suffering on the part of our Lord. Now a question arises at this point as we consider the suffering of Christ. And this is the question. Is it lawful to make a pictorial representation or statue of our suffering Savior upon the cross as is done, for example, in the Romish church, by the use of a crucifix? It is said that such crucifixes help us to see and understand the intense suffering that Christ endured in his agony upon the cross. It is said a picture of a suffering Christ causes his suffering to come alive for the Christian. It is said, after all, Christ did suffer in a human body. And those who witnessed his crucifixion actually saw a suffering Christ with their eyes. It is furthermore said, what could be wrong for us to picture but those who were present at the crucifixion saw, namely, a suffering Christ. Well, the historic Protestant position, and I would submit to you the biblical position on images of uh, Christ or any other person of the Trinity, has been that this is clearly a violation of the second commandment and therefore is idolatry. Let me summarize for you the reasons why images of God or of any person of the Trinity, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, are forbidden by God's Word. First of all, every image of God is a lying image, for it is a false representation of God. In Jeremiah chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 14 and 15, we read these words. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image. A founder is one who constructs or builds a graven image. For his molten image is falsehood. It's a lie. And there is no breath in them. They are vanity these images. They are vanity and the work of errors in the time of their visitation. They shall perish. And as we shall see, 
God is not simply condemning images of other gods, false gods. He is also condemning, as we shall see, images that would be constructed of the one true living God as well, or any of the persons of the Trinity. Dear ones, God has not left to us any pictorial representation of himself. Therefore, they are all figments of man's idolatrous imagination, no matter how well-meaning the intention of others may be, no matter how sincere they may be. I am not here to condemn their good intentions or their sincerity. I am here to say, the Bible says, that all images of God, Father, Son, or Holy Ghost, are lies. Secondly, every image of God confines God, who is an infinite spirit, to a finite, lifeless picture, statue, or image. It confines God. Whereas God says about himself in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 40, chapter 46, verse 5, to whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? What will you compare the living God to? How can an image in any way portray or represent the living God who has no boundaries? Even Jesus walking upon the face of the earth in a human body was fully God and that, as to his divine nature, knew no limitations. But when you picture Jesus Christ, does that image have limitations? Does that image, is it infinite as to its deity as Jesus Christ was here when he walked upon the earth? There is no image to which we can compare Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Thirdly, God has forbidden in the second commandment all such images of the Godhead to be made, first of all, or to be used as an aid in worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, we find there the second commandment. And in the second commandment, the Lord first forbids the making of images that represent him. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And then secondly, he forbids the use of any image as an aid to worship. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. Or we might say, or use them. Now, in the previous chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verses 15 through 19, we find essentially the same truth taught there. In chapter 4, Deuteronomy, verses 16 through 18, we find that God forbids the making of any image of the Godhead, and God says that you're not to make an image of any human likeness of God. You're not to make any 
heavenly likeness of God, angelic beings. You're not to make any animal representation of God, whether as a beast, a four-footed beast, or as a fish in the sea, or as a fowl of the air. And you're not to make any representation of God as any planetary figure, sun, moon, stars, anything of that nature. Now think with me for a moment about the various ways God is depicted and represented. Michelangelo's painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, one would find there that God is portrayed as a man and giving life to Adam at creation. Christ is often pictured, and most of us have probably seen such pictures, either as a man or as a lion or a lamb or as a fish. The Holy Spirit is often represented as a dove or as a flame of fire. I ask you, is God prohibiting here in Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 5 only the making and serving of images of false gods? I call your attention to Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, where we see whose image God clearly prohibits that we represent in any pictorial form. Let me read that for you. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude, that is, no manner of likeness, on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. God says, because you did not see any likeness or similitude of me that I gave to you in that particular day, therefore you are not to make any representation of me. This is not talking about making images, statues, or pictures of false gods but it is talking explicitly about making images of the one true living God. Furthermore, in Acts 17.29, the Apostle Paul, speaking there upon Mars Hill, says to these pagans, these Greek philosophers, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Here's again the explicit condemnation of using materials of this nature to construct an image of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 1, just go back a little further in the New Testament, again speaking of how God turned man over to his sin when he desired to fall deeper and deeper into his depravity. It says in verse 23 that these men changed the glory of of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man 
and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They didn't change a false god into an image. They changed the uncorruptible God into an image and it was therefore condemned. You see, dear ones, the first commandment forbids the worshipping of any god regardless of its name except the triune God revealed in Scripture. And the second commandment, on the other hand, forbids the worshipping of the triune God by means of images or any way which God has not appointed in his word. The larger catechism approved by the Westminster Assembly and then by the faithful church of Scotland in 1648 is also very clear on this point. Question 109 reads, What are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The answer states, The sins forbidden in the second commandment are, and one of those sins is mentioned here, the making any representation of God of all or of any of the three persons either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. But someone may ask, hasn't the incarnation of Jesus Christ altered the second commandment since God has now become man? And I would respond by saying absolutely not. God has not revoked the second commandment. You see, there were also bodily appearances of the Son of God to several people in the Old Testament. The Son of God, you may recall, even ate and drank with Abraham in Genesis 18.13. And yet, the second commandment expressly prohibited the making of a likeness of God, even though God did appear as a man in the Old Testament. So, dear ones, the question is not whether God has revealed himself in bodily form to man. The answer to that question is yes, he has revealed himself in bodily form in both the Old and the New Testament. Rather, the question is, has God ever given to man the prerogative to picture or represent himself to man? Did God ever give that prerogative to man? And the answer is no. If the answer is yes, then where did God ever give that prerogative to man? The fact that it cannot be found clearly indicates God has never given such a right or prerogative to man. The New Testament calls us as Christians to believe in Jesus Christ apart from seeing him with our eyes. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29, where the Lord says to Thomas, You see me, and therefore you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet do believe. Likewise, in 1 Peter, 
chapter 1, verse 8, we read these words. Whom, having not seen, that is Christ, whom we have not seen, ye love, in whom though ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Dear ones, we shall certainly see with our eyes the Lord Jesus in his glorified body there in heaven. There is coming a time when we will see him. But we will not see a representation of Christ. We will not see an image of Christ, a statue of Christ. We will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. If such an image of Christ, dear ones, is helpful to the faith of those today who have never seen Christ, as is argued by some, wouldn't the same image have been helpful to the faith of those to whom the disciples ministered who had never seen Christ? Wouldn't the argument hold true with regard to those living at the time of the apostles? And yet none of the apostles who knew Christ intimately after the flesh were ever commanded to make an image, a picture, a statue of Jesus Christ, nor does the scripture reveal that they ever even attempted such a project. Never, ever once. Why not? Because, I would submit to you, they were expressly forbidden from doing so in the second commandment. However, dear ones, we are taught in the New Testament to look upon Christ. How are we to look upon him? Are we to look upon a uh, an image, a picture? Absolutely not. We are to look upon him in faith. We are to look upon him as he has revealed himself to us in the Holy Scriptures. We are not to conjure up some mental image of Christ. We are not to conjure up or to make some physical image of Christ, but to hear that which is taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and to embrace Him by faith alone. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 40, where we find the idea of looking upon Christ and believing in Christ being parallel ideas and concepts one to the other. Jesus says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. To see Christ, dear ones, is to believe upon Christ. And to believe upon Christ is to see Christ with the eye of faith. Another place that we might consider is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. In the previous chapter, chapter 11, the apostle has given to us many, many individuals who lived by faith in the Old Testament. Many personages, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
many others that are specifically mentioned here. And in chapter 12, the Apostle says that we are compassed about by all of these witnesses. Not, not that we can see them. But they are witnesses as to how to walk a faithful life when they did not even see and know the end from the beginning, but simply had the Word of God and the promises of God, and they believed the promises of God. They are witnesses for us. They testify of this truth, that this is how Christians are to walk, by faith, not by sight. And he continues by saying, let me read verse 1 of chapter 12, and then I'll go into verse 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now notice, looking unto Jesus. How? Looking unto Jesus. Unto an image? Unto a picture? No, looking unto Jesus who is revealed in the Scriptures by faith. Just as these who have gone before us, these witnesses in chapter 11, we don't see them. So we do not see Christ. But we look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, dear ones, we might not make an actual image of Christ or draw a picture of Christ, but how do we make Christ appear as a mere creature by our words and by our actions? How do we lower Christ from who He truly is to make Him so common and so ordinary in our own lives? Well, when we profane His name by punctuating our sentences with God or Jesus or Lord in a profane way, or when we are entertained by those who do so, we bring Christ down to the level of a mere creature. When we ignore His commandments and truth, making excuses for why we cannot do what Christ calls us to do, we make him like an ordinary man whom we may simply disregard. When we usurp Christ's authority in his church by introducing our own ideas into the doctrine and the worship and the government of the church, we make Christ a mere member of the church rather than the head of the church. When we act as though Christ does not see us when we are all alone and all by ourselves and commit our private sins thinking no one sees us, we treat Him like a mere finite human being who cannot see through walls and concrete and steel. Dear ones, may we grow in our understanding as to how we lower the Lord Jesus Christ to the level of a mere man by our thoughts and by our words and by our deeds. 
As we look back to Mark 15, verse 33, we note there that there was a supernatural darkness that came over the land between the sixth and the ninth hours, that is, between noon and 3 p.m. A darkness in nature that spoke of the darkness of God's judgment that the sinless Son of God was carrying upon the cross. Because of this darkness that covered the land for three hours, there have been some individuals and churches that have stated it was only during those three hours of darkness that Christ suffered as the mediator for guilty sinners. Only during those three hours. None prior to that time did Christ suffer as our mediator. Was this true? Is that what the Bible teaches? No, the scripture does not limit Christ's suffering for the sins of his elect chosen from all eternity to those three hours of darkness upon the cross. To the contrary, the scripture points to Christ suffering as Savior and mediator for chosen sinners throughout his whole life, during the whole period of his humiliation. First of all, Christ became poor. It's a part of his humiliation. Part of his suffering for men. He became poor that we might become rich in all spiritual blessings according to 2 Corinthians 8-9. There was his poverty which he experienced before these three hours of darkness indicates that he was already our mediator. The suffering in the place of men. Secondly, Christ was rejected by man that we might be accepted by God, according to Isaiah 53.3. You see, his rejection by man was endured as suffering on our behalf and it was endured before these three hours of darkness. Thirdly, Christ sweat great drops of blood as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane that we who trust in Him alone for our eternal salvation might never, ever have to look with horror at the infinite judgment of God that awaits the wicked. According to Luke 22:44, His sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane was undertaken before these three hours of darkness. You'll recall that Christ was beaten to a bloody pulp with a Roman scourge that we might be healed of all of our sins. According to 1 Peter 3.18, by his stripes we are healed. His scourging was administered to him before these three hours of darkness. And finally, Christ was shamefully crucified between criminals for three hours before those three hours of darkness fell upon the land that we might receive the same forgiveness of sin and everlasting life that was promised to that one thief on the cross to whom Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. In Luke 23, 43. Dylan's his shame of being identified with criminals on the cross was suffered before the three hours of darkness. 
It began even before those three hours of darkness. What then did the darkness indicate? What's the purpose of the darkness that fell upon the earth and upon the land at that time? <coughs> the darkness was God's way of pointing to the culmination and fulfillment of the sufferings of Christ for his people. It did not indicate that his suffering was just beginning, but that it was now coming to an end. It is to indicate that he was not suffering for his own sin, but he was suffering for the sins of those that were chosen from all eternity. And we come now to the cry of the Lord with that incomprehensible anguish from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let us ask and answer the following questions concerning this loud cry of torment that fell from the lips of the Lord. First question is this. Did Christ suffer as God? or as a man. <clears throat> well, clearly Christ was fully God and fully man. And when Christ became a man, he did not lay aside his divine nature in any sense or his divine attributes in any sense. For God cannot lay aside who he is, otherwise he ceases to exist. He ceases to be who he is if he can lay aside his nature or his attributes even temporarily which is impossible it is equally clear that it is impossible for God to suffer the theological term that is used is that God is impassable impassable incapable of suffering that's because God is unchangeable and because God is eternally blessed. God is not on some kind of a roller coaster like this, like we are. God is forevermore blessed. God doesn't lose any sleep over what occurs here upon the earth. God has decreed all things. Nothing catches God by surprise. Thus Christ dear ones, as God did not suffer, but as a man he suffered. That was why the Son of God became man, that he might identify himself with guilty sinners and suffer the wrath of God for them. Another question. Did Christ suffer in body or in soul or in both? Well, Christ certainly suffered excruciating torments in his body, as we have seen. He was beaten with fists by the temple guard in his face. He was whipped with the Roman scourge, which had attached to the long thongs, leather thongs, had attached to it bone and metal. When, as it fell upon the back, or as it wrapped around the person, it would literally take pieces of flesh out of the person's body. Many historical indications 
exciting that the very organs within were exposed after receiving the Roman scourge. He was made to wear a crown of thorns and this was beaten deeply into a skull with a rod. He crumbled under the weight of the cross which he carried due to the loss of blood and the loss of strength, the loss of sleep. He had spikes driven, pounded into his hands, most likely this part of his hand, his wrist in this area. Both hands and both feet. He hung under the heat of the sun in the most slow and agonizing deaths ever invented by sinful men. Clearly, Christ suffered in his body. But Christ also suffered as no man has ever suffered in his human soul as well. He who came unto his people Israel was rejected and despised by them. He who faced the terrors of God's infinite wrath was so disturbed in his soul as he saw the horrors of God's judgment that would befall him that he sweat great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane showing the torment in his soul. He was falsely accused of blasphemy and treason. He was mocked and ridiculed by soldiers who bowed before him in jest. He was publicly shamed by being stripped of his clothing as if he were an animal hanging upon the cross. He was publicly cursed by being hung upon a cross between two condemned criminals who deserved to be there. And he beheld the suffering of his mother and the other women as they stood near the cross, seeing their grief and their sorrow. And he who knew no sin sensed in his soul the full weight of God's wrath as he suffered in the place of unworthy sinners. Sinners who were chosen from the very foundation of the world. His suffering in body and soul, I would submit to you, was maximized because he deserved none of it. It was not minimized because he was perfect, and holy and sin sinless. It was maximized beyond any suffering in soul that any of us could possibly imagine because he didn't deserve it. What absolute anguish beyond description for the unspotted, untainted Son of God to suffer the wrath of God as if he were the chief of sinners. Amazing to think of what Christ endured for the life of you and me, unworthy sinners chosen from all eternity. The next question, how was Christ forsaken by God the Father? Well, Christ was not forsaken by God the Father, as we said, 
before as he was God. For he noted before that God cannot suffer. Christ was forsaken by God the Father as he was man. Christ still was not absolutely forsaken as if he lost all hope of God's love for him and God's pleasure in him for he can yet cry out, My God, my God. However, in some mysterious yet real sense beyond our finite comprehension, the light of God's countenance was diminished and the sense of God's presence was obscured so that Christ experienced being forsaken by his Father as, beca- as he became the sacrifice for the sin of the ungodly. In that moment, God the Father allowed Satan and all his demons to attack his Son with temptations and horrors never experienced by any man. He became, as it were, the whipping boy of the devil as Satan unleashed his hatred for Christ as he has never unleashed it against any man. This was the agony, dear ones, above and beyond all agony which the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for sinners. The Lord Jesus was silent. Nothing is recorded in the Scripture as to Him saying anything when He suffered the pain of the Roman scourge on His back or as He suffered the crown of thorns being beaten into His skull or as He felt the spikes being driven and pounded into His hands and into His feet. We find Christ not saying anything. But when he was forsaken by God, he cries out in absolute agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He suffered being forsaken by God in the place of guilty sinners in order that we might never suffer that forsakenness by God. Was there ever such a demonstration of love? That which was most precious to Christ, the sense and the experience of God's presence with him, was willingly sacrificed in order to secure the salvation of those who deserved to be forsaken for all eternity in hell. That which was most painful to Christ, the sense and the experience of being forsaken by his Father, was most willingly endured by Christ for undeserving sinners. Very briefly, the second main point, Christ was yet confident in God. Mark 15.34 says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Lord Jesus was not cast into total despair or hopelessness, even in the midst of his misery of being forsaken by his Father. For he cried out, My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Christ, even as a man, was confident that he would pass through this anguish and this torment. For God was not just God in some general sense to Christ, but was his God in a very personal sense. Not only was he God, but as a man, the Father was his God. His faith and confidence were in God who was able to sustain him and bring him out of the valley of the shadow of death. <clears throat> I remember very well the torment that I experienced as a child. Perhaps you have a similar experience. And having to go into a dark room all by yourself when you were young. I don't know if dark rooms scared you like they scared me. But I know that I became petrified and scared into a literal paralysis so that I couldn't move. And if I tried to shout or scream for help, nothing came out of my mouth. I was so petrified of that dark room. But you know, as I think about my fear as a child and even fears that I have today, it wasn't the darkness itself that petrified me. It was a sense of being all alone in that darkness that scared me. For I could walk anywhere into a dark room at any time as long as I walked hand in hand with one of my parents. No problem. Darkness didn't frighten me when I was walking hand in hand with a parent or with someone I trusted. So you see, there was, it was not the darkness, but the aloneness that was frightening to me. And I dare say that our Savior, it was facing the guilt and condemnation for man's sin and the attacks of the enemy all alone being forsaken by God that was the greatest torment that Christ experienced. Dear ones, the same is true of us in our lives every single day. What is it that makes situations so frightening to you? I would submit it is not the darkness. It is not the person. It is not the situation itself that you fear. But rather, it is that sense that you are all alone or you feel all alone that is so terrifying that you have to face that situation by yourself. But dear ones, when we by faith lay hold of the Almighty Christ who calmed the raging waves of the sea and hushed the mighty billows of the howling wind and who powerfully chased the powers of hell from those who were tormented by demons, we can, by God's grace, face any situation in life knowing we walk hand in hand with the Creator of the universe. Fear results from thinking, and I want you to underline this, whether in your mind or in your notes, fear results from thinking we are all alone and not from the darkness or the person or the situation we face. 
The answer, therefore, is to so grow in our faith in Christ and in the knowledge of Christ and in the promises of Christ that we know, that we know that we are never alone. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are not alone. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup overfloweth. Because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was forsaken by God, has died for me that I might never be forsaken by God. Our elder brother walks with us hand in hand. Even into the fiery furnace, heated ten times hotter than normal as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In conclusion, dear ones, we may also go through times in our life where it seems as though we cannot feel the hand of God in our hand. And those dark rooms look so foreboding and so scary. Why do we lose that sense of God's presence with us? Let me give to you just very briefly at least three reasons, and there may be others, but let me give you three reasons. First reason may be due to the fact that we are living obstinately in sin. And God disciplines us by withdrawing his presence from us. We need to ask ourselves, when we lose that sense of God's presence with us, Lord, is there something in my life that I have in some way offended thee, sinned against thee? We don't have to go on endlessly looking for it because I believe that if we're sincere and we ask God, God does reveal that to us by his word and his spirit. But if we do not find that we are living obstinately in some sin, then maybe we need to look at another possible reason. This may be due to the uh, weakness of our faith, that we simply have a very difficult time laying hold of the Almighty Christ in a situation like the one we're facing. And we need to grow in our knowledge of who Christ is. Grow in our knowledge of His power, of His might. Grow in our knowledge of His faithfulness, His care and His love for us as His people. Our faith needs to grow. The Lord many times takes us through these situations we have nowhere to turn but to Christ, that we might learn, that we might grow and seeing that Christ is there. He never left us. Though we, we couldn't sense him, he never left us. He was there the whole time. Or thirdly, this may be due to the wisdom of God, and it ties into some degree with what I just said, may be due to the wisdom of God, not as a result of discipline, maybe not even uh, due to the weakness of our faith, but simply to the wisdom of God who brings these types of situations into our life that we may grow thereby. 
that we may love even more the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may hunger and thirst and desire his presence with us even more than we have ever in the past. Beloved, because Jesus Christ was brought victoriously through his period of being forsaken and all alone under the mighty hand of God, we have not a uncertain hope, but an absolutely certain hope that no matter what we face in life, we too shall be brought victoriously through periods of feeling abandoned and all alone. For Christ was forsaken for those who deserved to be forsaken for all eternity in hell. And Christ yet believed in his Father in the midst of his forsakenness in order that we who trust in him by faith and even in the weakness of our faith that God will give us the grace to persevere. Christ overcame and so shall we. He was confident in God and God will yet, even through our time of forsakenness, give to us the grace that we will again lay hold of Christ in such a way that His presence and the blessing of His presence will be manifested to us. I would simply say, dear ones, if you suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ and the cause of Christ and you feel all alone in standing for very unpopular principles and doctrines and practices today, I want you to know today that you are not alone. You have many witnesses, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have preceded you. You do not stand alone. You have those who are presently living, who stand with you and are bound by that solemn league and covenant to uphold you. You do not stand alone. And most importantly, you have the Lord Jesus Christ who is forsaken that you may never ever have to stand alone. May the Lord encourage us today from these truths. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.